I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 68 in the series, The Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 23, tensions between Jesus and Israel's religious leaders reach a fever pitch as Jesus moves from sharp critique to publicly denouncing the Pharisees. What does the story about some of Jesus' harshest words mean for his followers now? Are we to emulate Jesus in this way? Or is this critique meant for us as well? I like words, which can be a good thing or a bad thing, depending. On my best day, I can make a a decent arrangement of words and use it to do something good. On my worst day, I can make a decent arrangement of words and use it to really hurt someone. And in my younger, less mature years, this is something I would do deliberately, at low points, obviously. I wouldn't yell or swear. I wouldn't be crass. It wasn't like a, a roast or a diss track. But I'd get so angry or so hurt that I would string together a tirade of words issued calmly to say the most horrible things I could think of to someone else. The last time I remember doing that kind of thing was about 15 or 16 years ago. So cut me some slack. I was on the phone with a girl I had dated. I could tell this was probably going to be our last conversation. It wasn't going well. She said a few things that were particularly hurtful. And I felt this thing winding up inside me like an awful mechanism. I don't remember exactly what I said, but I delivered this efficient assessment of her designed to exploit every known weakness. And when I finally stopped talking, she was in tears and I remember, I remember her saying, no one has ever been so cruel to me. And I hung up. Sometime later, Abby and I were dating, and the young lady that I had been so awful to called me one day. And I hesitated to answer, but Abby, in her trademark wisdom, said to me, you need to answer her call, you need to repent, and you need to ask for her forgiveness. So I did. And this young lady was gracious enough to forgive me. I was very grateful. The thing about saying mean things to someone is that you don't have to be an ethicist or a disciple of Jesus to recognize that there's something wrong with it. We disagree on what qualifies as mean or whether or not saying something mean is ever necessary, that sort of thing. But most people will admit that it isn't great to tear someone apart with your words. In fact, most sane-ish followers of Jesus would likely agree that American evangelicalism's very bad, and I would argue deserved reputation, is in many ways a result of mean talk, rude, dehumanizing, political, judgmental, self-righteous yelling, basically. This kind of stuff shows up in survey after widely conducted survey asking the average Joe or Jane their take on American Christianity. It's as ubiquitous as ever at the moment with endless quasi-Christian internet rants about COVID-19 and conspiracy and politicizing and demonizing of everyone and everything. It's a bad look. So it makes a lot of sense that the New Testament actually encourages disciples of Jesus way in the other direction. Jesus forbids his followers from passing judgment on others. He teaches nonviolence and enemy love. He encourages humility and self-sacrificial kindness, especially to those who are your enemies. The subsequent writers of the New Testament stress the importance of gentleness and quiet. Paul tells disciples of Jesus really on more than one occasion to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business. And if you're really been out of shape about the corrupt powers that be, what you should do is pray for them. 
that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness, and to let your gentleness be evident to all. Now, I realize this comes as a little surprise to most of you. So why am I opening with all this? Quite frankly, we are about to read some of the most intense, fiery things that Jesus said to anyone. And it is what many people would describe as mean. It is certainly, at the very least, harsh. And we're not supposed to talk like that. So why is this story in the Bible? And, and what are we to make of it? Open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23. This teaching is entry number 68 in our ongoing study of the Gospel of Matthew. We just finished an entire series and set of practices about learning to read and understand and meditate on the scriptures. So what better time to put those tools to ongoing use than to return to this story? Now, we didn't choose the Gospel of Matthew knowing that it would take us a long time to finish because we just figured, oh, well, it's church and that's what you do and you kind of flipped around in a book and said, here, we chose this biography of Jesus the same time that we were designing the practices wanting this story to work in tandem with our taking on the spiritual disciplines. We want to constantly remind ourselves that all of this comes from Jesus, meaning there are all sorts of valid reasons that we should learn to pray and to fast and to forgive and to live in community with one another. But it begins with this. Jesus did those things and he taught his apprentices to do those things. How do we know? We study Jesus. We study his words and his teaching and even the subtle details of his life. We are students of Jesus, servants of Jesus. Jesus is teacher, master, and Lord. Jesus held the scriptures to be crucial and authoritative, so we do as well. Now, it's been a while, and I don't know if you guys uh, noticed more than a couple of things have happened in the world since we were last in a sanctuary together learning through the scriptures. Remember the sanctuary? Remember together. So to recap, we are at a point in the story where Jesus' work has entered a kind of time-sensitive pressure cooker. In the beginning of the story, Jesus was keeping things quiet, not announcing exactly who he was, asking others who realized that he was indeed the long-awaited Messiah of Israel to keep that little tidbit to themselves. But then things start to change. Jesus' disciples acknowledge him to be the true king of Israel. Jesus recognizes and validates this claim, no longer keeping it quiet. But confusing everyone, Jesus is now saying that rather than enter Jerusalem and mount an uprising against Rome, which is what the Messiah was supposed to do, he is going to instead suffer and die, which is what the Messiah is not supposed to do. But, you know, Jesus says a lot of things, really. So his disciples kind of shrug and chalk it up to one of those weird things that Jesus says. Then a group of Jesus' followers publicly celebrate him into the city, practically shouting, this is him. And Jesus doesn't stop them. He doesn't ask them to be quiet. He goes into the temple when it's most crowded and he starts openly condemning the religious leaders and the temple establishment as a whole. It's like he's trying to get in trouble. And wait, didn't he say that he planned to die here? What the heck is going on? Now, where we last left Jesus, he was warning his disciples against the toxicity of Israel's religious leaders, saying that they love status and they love acclaim. He said this specifically, those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So now we're about to see Jesus demonstrate these consequences in effect. 
What we're about to read is often called the Sermon of Seven Woes. Now, I've had a fair share of woe pronounced on me in my day. And if I'm being honest, I've pronounced a bit of woe myself. But this is intense stuff. When I was studying it this week, I kept thinking, whoa. (laughs) Ah, Yeah, that's twice. That's twice I did that. And I realized that I've already done that, but I thought it was so good. And no one appreciated it in person. So maybe maybe you'll appreciate this on your Zoom call. Anywho, the religious leaders who love to exalt themselves, Jesus said, now they are about to be humbled, just like Jesus said they would. This is the great both and of Jesus. He comes as both Savior and as judge. He baptizes with water and with fire. He blesses and he warns. In fact, some scholars argue that the Sermon of Seven Woes acts as a kind of, a kind of counterpart to the Sermon on the Mount, which opened with, if you remember, a pronouncement of blessing. This sermon is a pronouncement of woe, which is a word that means great sorrow or distress. In Greek, the word is ui, and it couples together the idea of grief and denunciation. It's not just being bummed about something. It's being deeply grieved to the degree that it must be denounced. And there are seven of these pronouncements. You've got the closed doors, the crossers of seas, the knowers of secrets, the tithers of everything, the cleanest people, the beautiful people, and the defenders of faith. And each of these uh, denouncements reflect four different dimensions of corruption. There's false motivations, false emphases, false exteriors, and false traditionalism. Now the goal for the next few minutes is to unpack all seven woes and then talk a little bit about what all this has to do with us. So hang in there. We're going to get through all of them. Jesus is going to seem more intense than he ever has. And you're going to sort of feel like it has almost nothing to do with us. But it does. So stay with me. You guys ready to get into it? Kyle Nelson, are you ready? Kyle Oxford, are you ready? Simon Long, (laughs) are you guys still with me? Just you three. That's who I'm worried about this particular video. All right, Matthew chapter 23, beginning with verse 13. Matthew 23 13, Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites or phonies, you actors. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Jesus is here referring specifically to anything and everything that discourages one from entering into and persevering in true discipleship. So the Pharisees at this point, if you're tracking with the story, already have a, a very bad history of wanting very much to snuff out the movement of Jesus, which is serious because these guys are Israel's religious leaders. They have a platform, they have a voice, they have influence. They've been thus far unsuccessful in stopping the movement, But we learn here that they have discouraged would-be disciples. There are people who might have come to faith and they haven't because of the Pharisees. They are, Jesus says, slamming the doors of the kingdom in people's faces. And this kind of thing actually went on. Around AD 85, the Pharisees developed something called the test benediction, which was a curse pronounced on Christians in the Jewish synagogue. It opened, and I quote, let Christians and heretics perish in a moment. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and let them not be written with the righteous. But, you know, that's an extreme and and pretty obvious example. Most of the ways the kingdom doors are slammed in people's faces, I think, are, are more subtle. 
To be sure, neither Jesus nor the authors of the New Testament expected that Jesus' apprentices would never err in their discipleship, never entertain any wonky theology or false teaching. We all mess up. That's a given. Much of the New Testament is really just a note of encouragement and correction to sincere disciples of Jesus who are trying and failing and trying again. So that's a given. But leading people away from the truth directly or indirectly, is very serious to Jesus. Remember his whole, uh, it'd be better to be thrown into the ocean, chained to a rock, than to lead someone astray teaching? That's how serious it is. So when someone like me gets on stage and teaches irresponsibly in such a way that it leads people away from the truth of the scriptures and away from authentic discipleship, they are effectively teaching others away from the kingdom of God. This is the same of not just Bible teachers, but authors, podcasters, anyone with a platform. The same is true of you. If and when you speak and behave in such a way that leads others away from the truth of Jesus rather than to it. So it makes sense that Jesus would take issue with such a thing, given that the central concept of his teaching is what he called the kingdom of God. Jesus intends to open wide the gates of the kingdom and invite everyone in. So when someone comes along to slam those gates in the face of someone who would have come inside by their words or actions or bad teaching or with their book or their podcast or their platform, whatever, Jesus takes that very seriously. Woe to the closers of doors. He goes on in verse 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you phonies. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you've succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. The teaching of the Pharisees has wide-reaching influence. And yet the outcome of that privilege and platform is widespread corruption. Verse 16, woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and the one who dwells in it, God, that is. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Now, I get that all of that sounds really weird, but here's what we think Jesus is getting at. All the way back in Jesus' uh, manifesto on life in the kingdom of God, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, he taught his disciples not to swear oaths at all because they are to infuse their words with such a consistent track record of integrity that no extraneous swearing is necessary at all. In other words, you are to become the kind of faithful, dependable people who don't have to make promises. If you say yes, that just means yes. If you say no, that means no. And the people who know you learn to know this about you. So here... Jesus is drawing attention to what he believes is the ludicrousness of the religious leader's approach to oaths and the specificity and the nuance of it. So they have all these kinds of detailed codes about the best way to swear and how to swear and which swears are binding and why when they should have and teach a kind of integrity that would render swearing obsolete. 
Their system isn't even consistent, Jesus says. But there's actually more to it than that. Jesus is actually condemning biblical over-interpretation. So these guys have made complex systems out of the temple and the gold and swearing by them. And they've completely missed very basic truths that are right in front of them. So this is a warning for people like me, again, whose job it is to dive deep into the scriptures and to attempt to teach them well. And there's a time and a place to unpack the rich, beautiful complexities of the text. And there's also a time to recognize what is plain and evident in the truth of scripture for anyone willing to find and cherish it. So here's a funny analogy. I've mentioned before that I enjoy uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Love it, play it every couple of weeks with the same group of people. I've been doing it for years now. But I had wanted to learn many, many years prior. So once I walked into a game shop, remember shops, and uh, I asked the clerk, who looked very stereotypically like a clerk in a comic book, you know, RPG shop, if he might explain the basic idea of how one plays Dungeons and Dragons. And he sneered and scoffed and he laughed at me and said, do you have a few months? So I figured, oh, well, dang, no, I don't, sir. And I didn't learn until years later, I, you know, retold this story to a friend of mine who played and he said, oh, well, I mean, sure, it can be complicated, but a lot of it's really simple. Here, I will show you. So there you go, a profound analogy from Dungeons and Dragons. N.T. Wright put it this way, a less profound thing. <laughs> he says, their complex legal systems led them not only to devote their own lives to details which had nothing to do with the real purpose of the law, but also to make it impossible for serious seekers after truth or after God to find their way. So let's keep reading, verse 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. Cumin? Cumin? How do you, how do you say that word again? Cumin. Cumin. The stuff that smells weird? Don't email us. Don't email. Yeah, we actually, we're actually not interested in the pronunciation whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let me start that over. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. The Torah commanded uh, agricultural tithes of corn, wine, and oil specifically. But the religious leaders have gone well beyond the requirements and they tithe all kinds of other stuff as well, which seems like a good thing, but Jesus is actually repulsed by it because the Pharisees tithe for status and honor, or for bragging rights, and they neglect any practical exercise of self-sacrificial love. They don't do justice. They are not actively caring for the poor. So this good thing, the tithing system, like many good things, becomes insidious when it is mispurposed. They've taken something that's precious to God and with emphatic focus on the letter of the law, Without any concern for the spirit of the practice, they have corrupted it. Scholar R.T. France argues that the focus of this woe is on a meticulous concern for detail which leaves the essential principles of religion untouched. 
And this charge is as stinging as ever when applied to modern fundamentalism that frets and obsesses over rule following without honoring the greatest command to love God and other people. Which is why most of us, I would venture a guess, know people or have known people who are very strict in their rule following, who read their Bibles and show up to church, but who aren't much like Jesus at all. And notice, Jesus does not say, eh, forget tithing, you should just be doing justice. He says, you should have practiced the former without neglecting the latter. Do both things, they're good things, and do them correctly. Again, they are blind guides, the Pharisees. They don't get the very thing they claim to teach. And to make this point, Jesus uses a, a grotesque imagery. You swallow a camel but strain out a gnat. The picture is of someone eating and defecating, and both creatures used in the image were deemed unclean by the law. So it's even grosser than it sounds to us. Jesus is using creative word imagery to very dark, upsetting ends. Artists often do that. Verse 25 Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites who clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. It's pretty interesting that Jesus accuses the Pharisees of violence and greed, which are things no one would typically associate with Phariseeism. In fact, this whole thing sounds nuts because almost everyone in Jesus' day thought of the Pharisees as the good guys. They are the Bible guys, the rule followers. But to Jesus, evil happens inwardly as much as or even more so than it happens outwardly. So the Pharisees are are guilty in their hearts, so to speak. Verse 27 Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones, the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Now, uh, prior to Passover in Jesus' time, graves would be marked with bright white chalk, kind of a lime plaster, so that passerbys would not accidentally touch or come near the graves and accidentally make themselves ceremonially unclean. Now, the graves, when they were done up this way, they looked kind of bright and gleaming and white, uh, but everyone knew that they were full of corpses. Jesus is using that imagery to condemn the Pharisees. The entire religious charade is a wash. It's a sham. Everything is rotten. It's just a decorated grave. It is decomposing from the inside out. Jesus is saying, your faith is like a grave full of decaying corpses. The language is brutal, to say the least. The imagery is shocking. Exactly how upsetting is kind of lost on the modern reader. For the Pharisees, corpses and graves were unclean, much like camels and gnats, the kinds of things that would render one incapable of standing before God. And Jesus isn't done. Verse 29. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then, complete what your ancestors have started. This is actually fascinating. Jesus is condemning the heritage of the Pharisees. Now, when we're thinking of the Bible story and we hear prophets, we tend to think, oh, the good guys, they're good guys in the story. 
But in the story, the prophets were lone, eccentric figures who would publicly condemn Israel's sin and call her to repentance. So it was not a popular job with just about anyone. In fact, it's a great way to get yourself killed. One scholar I read compared this to a modern southerner who would say something like, if I'd been alive in the 18th century, I would have done something about all this slavery business. And Jesus is saying to them, no, you are the slave owner. That is your legacy. And Jesus, in this condemnation, is participating in the line of Israel's prophets with his condemnation of religious leaders, condemnation of Israel's sin, which is exactly why he, like the prophets before him, will be killed. And he ends with some of his harshest words yet. Look at verse 33. You snakes, he says, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Good grief. Okay, that's it. That was something, right? <laughs> now, before we end, let's talk about what this means for you and me. Let's get this out of the way first. In the story, Jesus speaks very harshly. He pronounces judgment on the religious leaders. We're students of Jesus. Are, are we supposed to do that too? The answer is kind of yes and no. Actually, Jesus has expressly forbidden his apprentices from judging the world. That is his job and his job only. Bruner writes this, The church that follows Jesus has been called to extend only God's saving mission to the world. She has been explicitly forbidden to exercise God's judgment, except in the disciplining of her own community. So we don't judge the world but we do hold one another to a kind of judgment or accountability within the community of God's people or the church. Paul renders the idea with wonderful clarity when he writes, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? So Jesus himself and the subsequent writers of the New Testament go on to outline systems for confronting sin in the church. It's where we get our concepts of harsh-sounding terms like church discipline or even excommunication. We get those ideas from Jesus himself, and we get them from the rest of the scriptures. But those situations are intimate, gentle exchanges that are carried out with patience and communication in the connectedness of community between brothers and sisters. In other words, we don't go around screaming at corrupt leaders, calling them snakes, how will you escape hell, 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 that kind of thing. People do that, unfortunately, but don't, don't do that. You hear that, Michael Dumont? Stop doing that. <laughs> it's funny because he's the last person I can think of doing something like that. But I wager that's not the primary way that this text hits most of us. I doubt most of you are getting all amped up to go stream at anyone. Few of you guys were hearing all that and thinking, oh, cool, the next practice is going to be the pronouncement of woe. <laughs> uh, that's not how this hits most of us. And it is for us. Now, it's never the best idea to just go and abstract the specifics and context from the text and make it apply to you. But hopefully we're beginning to see that that's not the way biblical interpretation works. The Bible is a story. It's a work of art. It's a true story, but it is a story. So Jesus' polemic against the Pharisees wasn't directed at you or me in a specific sense, but this scene does reveal the seriousness with which Jesus understands hypocrisy to the degree that, honestly, it should be pretty unsettling. 
But here's the thing. On the surface, this seems to apply more to someone like me than to a lot of the people listening to this. It applies more so to Bible teachers or church leaders, people with platforms who talk about, you know, how to understand the scriptures, that kind of thing. And it does apply to us in a unique way, honestly. I've been grappling with it all week long, but scholars believe Matthew included this passage for the reader, all readers. That is, we are meant to confront these woes and ask, is it me? Which is why Bruner writes again, in my own interpretation of the text, therefore, I must try very hard not to stereotype Phariseeism, and I must point every critical remark to the church. Matthew probably intended this chapter to be transparent to the church. I think that Matthew intends this chapter as a massive end-of-gospel warning to the people of God, old and new. Or also from N.T. Wright, it would be a bad mistake to read a chapter like this as a moral denunciation of somebody else. That's halfway to committing the very mistake that's being attacked. This passage forces every reader to confront a side of Jesus that may seem shocking, but this is the Jesus our hearts most desire. When we read horrific stories in the news, stories of violence and injustice, stories like Ahmaud Arbery's murder on camera in broad daylight just a short distance from where I grew up, and we realize that racism and violence and hatred continue to thrive in the world. When we hear heartbreaking stories of child abuse and neglect and pedophiles and predators, when we remember starving children and political corruption and those who victimize the weak and the helpless and the vulnerable, we need Jesus to be very upset about these things. In verse 33 of tonight's text, Jesus asks, how will you escape the judgment of hell? Now, the Greek word that my Bible translates as judgment is krisis, and it can be translated as judgment as it is here, but it can also be translated as justice, meaning how will you escape the justice of hell? Now, we hear a line like that, and we can't help but bring a few centuries of weird baggage about hell into the text. So you think of like Dante's Inferno, or Renaissance art of people screaming in flames and being devoured by giant frogs and monsters and stuff. But put that out of your mind for a moment and just think of the question that Jesus is asking this way. How will you escape the coming judgment when evil will be eradicated once and for all? The part of you that hates to hear about horrific injustice, the part of you that feels absolutely incensed by those stories, I believe that that's part of what it means to be made in God's image. We need Jesus to be very angry about evil. But unlike us, Jesus can separate evil from the evildoer. Later, we will see Jesus pray forgiveness over the same group that he condemned. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. He pleads for repentance. Jesus wants to destroy evil and abuse and corruption, but he wants to do it without destroying evildoers and abusers and the corrupt. We are unlike him in that way. So this story reads for us as heavy, but also beautiful. Theologian Stanley Hauerwas called it a sobering list of failure and judgment with descriptions of hypocrisy and failure in which we cannot help but see ourselves. We are the phonies. 
those guilty of pretense and hypocrisy, those who have emphasized rules over justice, those who have paraded ourselves as put together in good when inside we are often twisted and corrupt. And Jesus is good enough to be who our hearts most desire, the good judge who will not let evil stand. Because we need Jesus to destroy evil, even the evil in us. He is also the gracious Lord. He forgives and he redeems. Reading a sermon like The Seven Woes makes it really tough to want to take advantage of the graciousness of Jesus as if he is some lax judge, so gentle that he's timid or passive. He is not. Jesus takes sin and hypocrisy very seriously. Jesus is the gentle shepherd, but he is also the powerful judge full of passion and fire. You are hypocrites, he says to the religious leaders, blind fools, children of hell, lying snakes. And though these words in the story are not about us directly, we are intended to witness this exchange and to shudder, not in fear of Jesus, but in the sobering realization of his fury against evil. He intends this to compel us into his forgiving arms, not to test the permissiveness of his grace. This is the great both and of Jesus. He comes as both savior and as judge. He blesses and he warns. He baptizes with water and with fire. Find yourself in this story and allow Jesus to lead you away from evil and into truth and life. Let us know him, the gentle shepherd and the fiery judge, and to love him. Thanks for listening to Van City Church. You can connect with us or find more teachings and available resources from Van City at www.vancity.church. You can also support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.